0: And there's the problem. You see, God didn't need a king who would be able to lead the people to victory on his own. He needed a king who would obey and trust him, even in situations that seemed very unlikely to turn out well. God is the one who gives the victory to those who love and obey him, even if they're far weaker than their enemies. And he needed a king who would believe that with all of his heart. But at the very first chance he got to demonstrate his trust in God, Saul proved that he didn't really have much of it at all, and that meant that he wasn't suited to be king. Now Samuel was brokenhearted over this. The author tells us in chapter 15 that Samuel cried out to God all night long, bitterly angry at the fact that things had gone exactly opposite of the way that he'd planned. And he wasn't exactly unreasonable to do this. God had, after all, told him that Saul was the one he'd chosen to be king. But all of that was now out the window, and Samuel's heart was broken at what he took to be God's failure to follow through on his promise. Now, where today's passage begins, God comes to Samuel and says, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons." Now, Samuel would no doubt have been worried about this. You can imagine him thinking, well, you thought that the last guy was the right one too, God. What makes you think that uh, you got the right one this time? But Samuel follows God anyway. Once he arrives at Jesse's home in Bethlehem, he looks over his sons to determine which one God had chosen. And God tells him over and over again that each of them is the wrong guy for the job. He also tells Samuel something very important. Something that is, in fact, the key to understanding the whole story. He says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, earlier in the text, the author has told us that Saul was a pretty good looking guy. In fact, there was apparently no one else in all of Israel who was as handsome as he was. He was also pretty clearly the sort of person who would make a good king. He had charisma and all the makings that a king would have been expected to have by the nations that were around Israel. But that's not at all what Samuel was supposed to be looking for. God wanted him to recognize that what he naturally assumed to be the best way was very often not God's way at all. God wanted to reveal that he works in surprising and often unexpected ways. We look on the outward appearances of things and assume that they couldn't possibly be the way that God has chosen for us. But God sees through those appearances and chooses to use them anyway. Now Samuel trusted God in this and told Jesse that God hadn't chosen any of the sons that he'd seen, asking if there were any others that hadn't been shown to him yet. And there was the youngest, the least important of them all, the shepherd boy David. No one expected much from him especially not compared to his older brothers, who were apparently much better equipped for fighting the battles that had to be fought for God's people. No one would have seen king material in David, at least not at first, but God saw through David's appearances into his heart. He saw that David had exactly the sort of heart that he needed in a king. Saul was unfit to be king because he didn't trust God when the rubber hit the road. He didn't believe that it's only by God's rescuing power that we can have the victory. David, on the other hand, despite being smaller and younger and less strong than his older brothers, was the kind of person who trusted God with all of his heart, leaning not on his own understanding. And this was revealed in his first confrontation with the Philistine army, which went exactly opposite of the way that it went for Saul. In his showdown with Goliath... David told him that although he was less experienced in battle, he trusted entirely in God and believed that he would rescue him. You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, David said to him, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Now David's heart at that moment was revealed to be exactly what God wanted in a king. He didn't need a king to save his people. He had no need of someone with great strength. He needed only a person who, no matter their physical or mental ability, would trust in him for the victory looking to him alone for strength. And that's precisely what he saw in David. David didn't look on the outward appearances of things. He looked only to God for strength. Goliath towered above him, coming at him with an arsenal of weapons and an enormous army, cheering him on. And all David had was his little slingshot. But once again, God didn't need him to have anything like the strength that ordinary people expected a warrior king to have. He needed only a heart that humbly trusted in God and not in human strength. So in this story, we have two examples of faith and one example of faithlessness. On the one hand, Samuel believed that God, uh, no matter how things looked from the outside, was going to make things work out if he would simply follow him in prayerful trust. Likewise, David, despite being smaller and less experienced than his opponents, trusted God for the victory over the Philistines. In contrast, Saul is portrayed as a person who sees things only from the outside and doesn't trust the one who sees things from the inside. He looks only at the outward appearances of things rather than placing his faith in the one who can make things work in even the most difficult of circumstances. Paul tells us that the things that happen in the Old Testament can serve as examples of how the Christian life should and should not be lived. As we've seen, a central theme in our story today is the significance of trust for the believer's relationship with God. So what can we learn about trust from Samuel, Saul, and David? I think there are four foundational characteristics of trust that we can learn from the story. Trust is, first of all, patient— Saul refused to wait patiently for God's rescue. When he saw his enemies surrounding him, his fear got the best of him and he gave up on God. But a heart that trusts is a heart that never gives up. Samuel, despite the fact that the first king that God had appointed failed miserably, didn't stop trusting in God. Yes, he probably questioned him in his heart, and we can also imagine that while he was crying out to God throughout the night, he was asking him why he hadn't come through, why the king he had chosen hadn't worked out. But when God called Samuel to go find a new king, Samuel obeyed him immediately. And that's the sign that despite his wrestling with God over what was happening, Samuel still trusted him. You see, obedience is a sign of trust. When we stop relying on God's faithfulness and start trusting in human power we stop acting out of obedience to God, which is exactly what happened to Saul. But very often, this obedience requires us to be far more patient than we would like. Consider, for instance, the story of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. When the Israelites escaped from Egypt with Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit, they came upon the barrier of the Red Sea and found themselves in a death trap with the army on one side and the depths of the ocean on the other. And Moses gave them astonishing instructions. Do not be afraid, he said. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today before you, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to keep still. Now listen to those words. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to keep still. Imagine what it would be like to face down a well-armed and bloodthirsty army, and to be told to do nothing but stand still. That's probably the worst advice you could receive in a situation like that, or at least that's what we humans would tend to think. But then as you're facing the army, preparing for the worst, you suddenly hear the roaring of waves behind you and turn around to see two massive walls of water stretching to the sky with a path between them for you. That's what God means when he tells us that we have only to keep still and he will fight for us. Trust demands obedience and obedience demands patience. It's very important to see that these stories are not telling us that God will come through anytime we do something totally crazy. God comes through for those who act out of faithful obedience to him. And that means that if our actions land us in hot water because of our failure to be obedient... This doesn't count as an act of faith. If the Israelites had found themselves trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army because of their own failure to do what God had commanded, uh, there would have been no sense in trusting in him to come to the rescue when they found themselves in that predicament. But they hadn't been disobedient. Rather, they had followed the leader that God had given them to lead them out of slavery and were therefore in a position to be confident that God would come through despite the total messiness of the situation. So trust, genuine trust, patiently waits for God to come through on what he promised. And that leads us to our second point. Trust is not only patient, it's also prayerful. If we're acting outside of God's will, our trust will be to no avail. Sometimes God does command us to step out in radical faith, but it's also possible for us to mistake another voice for His. If we're going to do something that seems crazy, and we think we're doing it out of faith in God, we have to prayerfully consider whether it's really Him speaking to us. And that means searching out His will prayerfully in Scripture, trying to make sure that nothing we are planning to do is outside of what He has already set out in His Word for us. It also involves praying over it in counsel with other godly believers. If all of these sources indicate that what we are hearing is definitely not God's voice, we should be very cautious about following through with it. In fact, if we think we're acting in trust while we're acting against God's word, we're simply deceiving ourselves. That's because God calls us to trust what he has revealed to us in scripture. So we're just mistaken if we're thinking that we're acting out of trust in God if what we're doing is contrary to what he's revealed to us in his word, and if the prayerful guidance of others opposes it, and if our own prayers make us uncertain about whether it's God's will for us. Now, Jesus set an example for us of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was apparently very certain that God was calling him to the cross, and yet even in the last moments before his arrest, he was imploring him to find another way. He was so earnest in this request that he was sweating blood. He didn't simply hear God tell him that he had to go to the cross. He wrestled with God in prayer over it, begging him to show him a way out. And yet in the end, like Samuel's wrestling with God over Saul, Jesus submitted to God in perfect trust. Not what I will, he said, but what you will. And that brings us to our third point. Trust must not only be patient... And prayerful, it is also very often painful. If God is calling you to step out in faith, it will often be to do something that is deeply opposed to your own desires. If you think God is calling you to do something crazy, and that crazy thing happens to line up exactly with what you want, then there's a good chance that you may not be hearing his voice. And here's the reason why. Part of the reason that God calls us to step out in faith is that he wants to show us just how powerful he really is. He wants to show us that he has the ability to give us what we desire in a way that is very different from the way that we might have expected to get it. So if some course of action happens to be exactly the thing that we want to do, we miss the opportunity to see God's power in action. We miss the chance to see God provide for us in ways that we couldn't even imagine, So if faith is a means of coming to love God more deeply, to understand his power more fully, then stepping out in faith will generally require us to step into situations that we quite simply don't like very much. And that's because it's only there that God's deep, deep love for us can be revealed. It's only when things get messy that God can show us that he is truly mighty to save. This point was driven home to me recently by none other than my lovely wife, Fernanda. She's been an example to me of unfailing faith in God, of trust that follows the Lord, even when everything appears to be opposed to what she wants. When we were dating, I told her about my dreams of studying theology at Duke, and she was instantly excited about it. She told me that she fully agreed that God was calling me to this and that she wanted to be part of the story with me. So when I was accepted to the program, we were overjoyed, and she told me that she knew it was what we were supposed to do. And yet the decision to move from Utah to North Carolina meant enormous sacrifice for her. She came to Salt Lake City from Brazil as a Portuguese teacher, and after several years of teaching the language there, she had established herself as one of the top Portuguese teachers in the state. Every door was open to her. She could have had any position that she wanted. She could have gone straight to the top, but she decided to give it up in order to follow God on this crazy adventure that he was leading us on. It hurt a great deal, but my wife knew that this was what God was calling us to, and she wanted to be part of what God was doing, even when it was painful. So she set aside her own will and moved thousands of miles away to Lillington, North Carolina, and has since come to see the wonderful ways in which God has provided for us here. We've fallen in love with the people of this church and uh, the beauty of this city. And after months of anxiously searching for a job, God has finally given her the teaching position that she longed for so deeply. So following God often demands great sacrifice, but it also opens the way for God to show us that he is powerful enough to provide for us if we will only trust and obey him no matter the cost. Now, I want to clarify that I'm not saying that God never leads us to do things we like to do. What I am saying is that when he wants us to take steps of radical faith, it usually won't be right in line with our desires. It usually won't, for instance, be a mission call to the Bahamas. But not all steps are steps of radical faith like that. There's also the ordinary, everyday steps of faith, and those might very often be in line with what we want to do but they also don't require very much trust. So they don't show God's saving power as fully as we see it when God calls us to follow him into deeper waters. It's only when trust hurts that we really know what it means to trust God at all. Once again, Jesus is our case study here. He was sweating blood in the garden for a reason. He was about to endure one of the most painful deaths that a human being can undergo. Jesus knew fully well just how much trust could hurt. But he also knew that on the cross, God's love for humankind was going to be revealed in the most earth-shattering way possible. David knew that God would save his people if he faced down Goliath with nothing but a slingshot. Jesus, on the other hand, knew that God would save the world if he faced down the devil on the cross. That is trust at the deepest level. David at least had some weapon to bring down the giant. He came at him with stones in his hand, but Jesus opposed the devil with his hands nailed to a cross. That brings us to our fourth and final point. We've so far seen what trust is. It is patient, prayerful, and often painful. But there's something that it's not. Trust, genuine trust, is never partial. That means that when God is calling us to do something, we don't follow him halfway if we really trust him. We go all the way. When Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and follow him, he doesn't mean to go halfway up the hill and call it a day. When God calls us to obey him in faith, he demands everything we have. That means that we shouldn't argue with him, or that, sorry, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't argue with him when he's calling us to do something it doesn't mean that we shouldn't wrestle with him about it and beg him to find another way. But it does mean that once we are confident that it is the course that he wants us to take, we must follow it and never look back. Sadly, however, we all know that our trust is incomplete. None of us has trust like that. We so often do what Peter did when Jesus stretched out his hand to him and told him to walk to him on the water. We step out in faith, believing that he'll do what he promised, but then we see the waves and feel the winds pulling us in every direction, and we lose heart and start to sink. But even when we give up on God, God doesn't give up on us. He reaches down from on high and draws us up out of the deep, setting our feet on solid ground. But he doesn't leave us on solid ground. He calls us to deeper and deeper trust. He slowly starts to dig up the roots of doubt from our hearts, making our faith more and more complete, so that we begin to understand what Paul meant when he said, everything I once thought was valuable, I now count as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things in order that I may gain him. Now ask yourselves, what holds you back from saying the same thing? What has a hold on your heart that keeps you from radical trust in your Savior? What keeps you from taking up your cross and following him all the way up the hill, into the depths of hell and back again? Do you believe, Jesus, when he says that if you take up your cross and lose your life for his sake, you'll find it again? What matters to you so much that you would prefer to keep it rather than to gain the priceless gift of a life lived in trust in your creator. This world and all that it desires is passing away, and you must decide whether you prefer to pass away with it or to take your stand on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. Now let's remember the, uh, the words of the great hymn writer Isaac Watts. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You'll remember the story of the father who came to Jesus to beg him to heal his demon-possessed son. Jesus replied that anything is possible for the one who believes. And the man responded, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let this be the prayer of our hearts today as we bow our heads to ask our gracious Lord to give us the faith that he calls us to have. Gracious God, you know the impatience of our hearts, the way that we desire perfect clarity in our lives, and to have everything happen the way that we want it to happen. Open us up to the possibilities that you have for us. Teach us to trust in you when everything around us seems uncertain. Give us the faith we need to believe with all our hearts that you can raise us from the dead if we follow your son to the cross in faith. That you can bring down giants before us if only we will come at them not with sword and spear but in the name of the Lord our God. That you can make a way through the depths of the sea if only we will stand still and wait for you. If only we will simply trust and obey. We ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.